This copyrighted podcast is presented by the U.S. Highbush Blueberry Council. The opinions and views shared by those of non-paid guests on the business of blueberries are those of our guests and do not represent the views, positions, or policies of the USHBC. The blueberry industry is like no other, passionate, resilient, and innovative. This podcast is your source for the latest information on the management, markets, research, and technology related to blueberry production. This is the business of blueberries. Here's your host, president of the U.S. Highbush Blueberry Council, Casey Cronquist. Welcome back to another episode of The Business of Blueberries, the only podcast dedicated exclusively to the blueberry industry. Unfortunately, in the past year, we have done two episodes about extreme weather events impacting our growers in the Pacific Northwest. Last summer, we reported on the heat wave in that area. And then again, in an episode in December, we talked to growers in that area about the flood damage they experienced. Here to provide more depth and insight into those severe weather events and their impact on our blueberry industry, I'm very pleased to welcome Dr. Eric Brandt, Research Director at the British Columbia Blueberry Council, and Dr. Lisa Wasco DeVetter, Associate Professor of the Small Fruit Horticulture at Washington State University. Welcome, Eric and Lisa, to the Business of Blueberries podcast. Thanks for having us. Yeah, it's our pleasure to be here today, Casey. Thank you. Well, I've enjoyed the opportunity to kind of get to know both of you, uh, Lisa, you in person up there in Washington, and then Eric virtually. Uh, in our conversations over this past year. But I thought I'd have the audience get to know you, have you introduce yourselves and tell us a little bit about the research you're doing in relationship to blueberries. So Eric, I thought you could get us started. Sure. So I've got a couple of different hats. I I am the research director for the Blueberry Council in BC, as well as the Raspberry Council and the Strawberry Growers Association. So I work with researchers to develop their programs and facilitate their work. But then I'm also a plant scientist with a specialization in horticultural management of berries. And so I do a lot of on-the-ground, on-farm research, variety trials, and horticultural management type research. Well, great to have you on the show. Really great to have you with us. And uh, Lisa, same question to you. Just a brief intro and share about your work you do with blueberries. Yeah, well, similar to Eric, I work with not just blueberry, but also red raspberry and strawberry. We're actually seeing some increasing acreage in blackberry. So learning a little bit more about the crop, not the Himalayan, that are our weedy blackberry plants that we find here in the Pacific Northwest. But really the aim, we do a lot of broad research in the program. Uh, we're trying to find ways to improve productivity, fruit quality, and on-farm efficiency for small fruit growers here in the Pacific Northwest. And we have the opportunity to partner with our neighbors to the north in BC, as well as some excellent neighbors to the south at Oregon State University. Well, so for those of you who may have missed the news about these events last year, Lisa, maybe you could provide us, just kind of take us back to that experience of the heat dome and what occurred this past year. Certainly. So 2021 was unprecedented in a lot of ways. The heat dome, I think, really kicked things off for us here in the Pacific Northwest. We had just overall an extremely warm growing season, but June 28th, which I remember really clearly because it was also my daughter's birthday, so it's kind of this day of infamy, but that's when we had the brunt force of that heat dome really hit our region. And when I say region, I mean Oregon. And so the, the blueberry as well as the blackberry, raspberry, and other caneberry crops were affected here in northwestern Washington as well as in British Columbia. And so it was really that September 28th event, the day thereafter, that we 
saw the most damage to crops as a result of high temperatures that plants were unable to acclimate and adapt to or growers manage for. Well, it was a, you know, kind of a all hands on deck moment for especially regions that don't experience that kind of heat and the prep that has to be involved if you're considering what the experience might have led to. But I, I also think it's, you know, as you described the heat dome, the consequence of that in relationship to then another weather event just months later uh, in relationship to the flood. So I thought maybe, Eric, you could give us some of that same context about the floods that were experienced in the same region. Sure. So, yeah, we just come out of a very stressful season for the plants going through that that hot weather in, in June and July. And then in November, we got some pretty unprecedented rains. I think it was between 500 and 600 feet worth of rain in a couple of days. Okay, maybe I'm exaggerating a bit here, but it was a lot of rain started in mid-November. And that caused a range of severity of flooding in different parts of the Fraser Valley in British Columbia here, just north of, of the border with Washington. In some cases, it was what we're calling kind of low to moderate severity flooding that was maybe less than 10 days and probably in most cases less than three feet. And then in other situations where the water uh, wasn't able to be drained from the area, we had the failure of dikes in a couple of locations. Then we had high severity flooding of what we're calling, you know, between 10 and 14 days and either less than or more than three feet. And then what we're calling extreme severity flooding is when we had more than 14 days of flooding in up to 10 feet of water where mature plantings were totally underwater for a sustained amount of time. And really that extreme situation is the unprecedented part for the flooding. Well, and I think in the case of you know this year that everybody experienced is the challenge of understanding it from a scientific perspective, you know, one right after the other. But maybe each of you can kind of give us an idea of the impact of both short and long term for the production as a result of these events. Sure. I can just jump in then, given the heat happened first. I mean, for us, the crop was already partially developed or developing. And so we had heat and UV damage from that heat dome effect. And that led to galling of the fruit. Uh, so that fruit was unsellable or unmarketable. We had scorching or burning of the leaves, and that's even with ample irrigation that growers were trying to provide to their crops to try to mitigate that heat. And then, you know, the longer term effects, I think we're going to see a theme here, but we still don't know for many genotypes. I think some genotypes, we have a pretty clear understanding that the damage sustained was great enough that we're going to see a negative impact on our crop. And I'm referring specifically to Aurora because of the cultivars or varieties that we grow here in the Pacific Northwest. That was the one cultivar that really suffered the most from the heat dome. And then Eric, you know, your sense of short long-term related to the floods. Yeah, that was, that was the big unknown is how bad the damage that we were seeing right then and there in the weeks after the flooding, how bad that was going to impact the plants in the long run. And that's where uh, Lisa and myself and a, a bunch of other experts from across the region, we got together to try and put together some best guesses at what we thought would happen to those fields. And then laddering onto that, uh, provide some recommendations for the best way to go about managing plantings that were impacted by various degrees of severity of flooding. So there's a 
a laundry list of potential negative impacts on the plant. Immediately after the flooding receded, the things you could see on the above ground parts of the plant, it looked like pseudomonas blight on a lot of the canes where they had gone completely black and that was just abiotic cell death. It had nothing to do with a pathogen. It was just the sustained flooding had caused cell death because plant cells need oxygen just like our cells. And so the short term was to see a lot of the young wood on these new plantings and even mature plantings that were underwater for eight, 10 feet for up to three weeks, that those tissues died. But then the, the longer term question is, okay, how's the root system doing? Is it going to be able to recover given the fact that the soil structure has also been negatively impacted? And then in terms of management, what do we do with the above ground part of the plant in order to facilitate the below ground part of the plant recovering? Well, and there's so many questions with that. I, I think if you're a grower who just invested acres and acres and acres that has that challenge ahead of, of the unknown, maybe you could talk a little bit about how you were answering those questions on the flood side and maybe some of those recommendations that were in that uh, white paper that you guys put together. Sure. And maybe I'll build off a comment that uh, Lisa just made about a variety called Aurora being particularly affected by the heat dome. And I would add Calypso to that as well. It, I, I noticed quite a bit of damage in that variety. With the flooding, we had these various low, moderate, high, and extreme severity events in different fields. But it's not the only thing that would dictate the degree of damage to a plant and therefore what needs to be done to bring it back into productivity. There's also aspects of, of the soil. Is it a heavy soil or a lighter textured soil that drains better? Is it a young planting, which is less likely resilient to long-term flooding? And then also, was it a strong planting to begin with? Some plantings are just not as vigorous because of pre-existing issues. And so with all of those different factors coming into play, we tried to parse out what you could recommend for different levels of severity of flooding. So in a circumstance like having low or moderate severity flooding, where it was three, five, seven days of flooding with maybe two or three feet of water, in some cases, all that the growers need to do is to repair the erosion to the beds, cover up the root balls of the plant again with soil, and then replace sawdust and fertilizer, and perhaps prune a little harder than usual and hopefully get back into the game. Under high and extreme severity, again, we've got a range of, of potential management options there, just depending on how strong the planting was and how old it was. So in some cases, we recommended uh, replanting of the field. if. Uh, a young planting of one or two years old has got a lot of the soil removed from on top of the root balls and substantial damage to the root structure, then it, in most cases it would probably make sense just to replant and start from scratch. Because we know very clearly that it's, it's very important to get a planting started off on the right foot. And so starting off with a flood within the first two years of planting is definitely not the right foot. And then under other circumstances where it was a mature planting that had a substantial root mass, was healthy going into the flooding. We recommended to remove all of the above ground plant tissue down to about knee height or around the height of the wires in order to allow for the plant to reestablish from the older wood, which didn't die during the flooding, and take off all of the, the younger wood at the top of the plant that had all gone black and would have just been a, a point of disease to begin. So really various uh, recommendations and all relating to the various factors that impacted both the severity of the flooding and the likelihood of a particular planting being negatively impacted. Wow. 
I want to dive into how we're going to go about answering some more of these questions. But before we do, let's take a quick break for our crop report. The North American season is well underway. And as we get further and further into the summer harvest period, we're going to be welcoming more and more regions onto this report. So here, once again, is your blueberry crop report. Yes, it's time for your Blueberry Crop Report, an update on crop conditions and markets from important blueberry growing areas. Today you'll hear from Elizabeth Carranza in California, Mario Ramirez in Mexico, Matt McCree in New Jersey, and Rex Schultz in Michigan. This was recorded on June 29th, 2022. Good morning, everyone. This is Elizabeth Carranza with the California Blueberry Commission, um, representing the California blueberry industry. At this point, we are wrapping up over here in California pretty much. I expect to have some volume seen over the next couple of weeks, but just based on what we've heard, we expect to be probably completely done by the end of next week. So we are wrapping up here in California. It's been getting really hot here in the Central Valley in the uh, 90s to 100s. So it's been pretty warm. So yeah, we expect things to wrap up and we should come in pretty close to our estimate of 55 million pounds total fresh for this season, but that's pretty much what we've got. Not a lot going on here as things are winding down here in California. Hi everyone, here the report for Mexican blueberries for week 25. And this week, Mexico exported a million pounds to all the world. And from this volume, 960,000 pounds were exported to the United States and this in, in fresh blueberries. From the total volume, uh, 6%, it means 60,000 pounds was organic blueberries. And the volume decreased around 40% this week, respect the, the last one. Until all, all this month and, and I think August, we keep with low volumes. As, as you may know, we, we begin with, with the high volumes from October in, in ahead. In frozen blueberries, Mexico exported 44,000 pounds, and this represents just 2% of the frozen market in the United States. For the full season, we have 171 million and 500,000 pounds. We are 20% higher than the last season. That's all in my report. Thank you very much. This is Matt McCree reporting for New Jersey. Weather has been favorable. For harvest at this point, we received about a quarter inch of rain over the weekend. Temperatures have been normal with highs in the mid 80s. Uh, harvest here seems to be slower than normal volume wise. Most farms are now in the first round of blue crop and also starting to see some first round of draper being picked. Uh, the Duke variety is being cleaned up with picking machines, uh, packing for fresh. After seeing the Duke variety finish up, we're looking to adjust our estimate down for our total crop around 30%. We think the reason for this reduction in our crop is from the March freeze that we saw earlier this spring. Uh, the size of the berry here is also affecting the total volume. So our total estimate at this point is now 34 million cutting that in half, so 30 fresh and 4 million processed. And that's what we're looking at for right now. Hi, this is Rex Schultz from uh, Michigan. Uh, we are taking and looking pretty good in Michigan overall. Weather, weather has been very favorable. We have been lacking uh, a little bit of rain, uh, but everyone has been irrigating pretty heavily. Uh, rain has been spotty in our northern counties and in the southern counties as well. Northern counties are looking um, to take and start their harvest somewhere around July the 10th through the 12th. 
We have just started here in the southern counties. Actually, today, a few farmers are starting to pick some early varieties of Bluetta and uh, Dukes. will probably start within the next couple of days. And we should be at full force picking Dukes by uh, the first part of next week. We look to have a pretty good season here if uh, weather stays the same and we don't get hit with any weather issues. But we are probably going to hit our uh, around the 80 million mark. And it's going to be about a 50-50 split, depending on the pricing and how that goes forward. We have a lot of farmers that are looking um, very cautiously at fresh pricing and whether or not to run their machines into process, because the process market seems to be a little bit strong right now. Even though fresh pricing is real good right now, everyone's going to be jumping on that early on, and hopefully they can maintain it for the season. Overall, our early varieties do seem to have taken a little bit of a uh, hit. We don't know, understand if it's pollination. We had some June drop. Our blue crop is looking really good. And as long as we get some sizing out of there with some water on them, we should have a good blue crop. And our Elliot's are looking great. If we get the sizing, uh should be a very strong late season for us. And other than that, we're moving forward, looking forward to the season. And that's the report for Michigan. Well, thanks so much to our busy growers and colleagues who take time to participate in this report. As a reminder, you can go to the new USHBC website where you'll find our Data and Insight Center to see more data of what's happening in our blueberry industry. We've added a lot more features to this dashboard, including USDA shipping price and movement, retail category performance, Nielsen monthly retail sales reports, and much, much more. So make sure you go to ushbc.org forward slash data to check that out. So let's get back to our featured conversation with Dr. Lisa DeVetter and Dr. Eric Gerbrandt. Lisa, what was the difference about this heat versus other heat waves we've seen in the region from your perspective? Sure. So this, you know, I use this word unprecedented a lot. You know, I've only lived in the Pacific Northwest since 2014, but, you know, sharing with other growers about this heat event, this was, you know, truly unusual what happened was that we had temperatures in the mid to upper 90s and in some cases within the region past 100 degrees. And so our crop with the pre-existing temperatures it was exposed to was not adapted to those high temperature conditions that led to the resultant damage from that first wave of heat that we had. And so one of the main differences with this particular heat event was the rate that it came on. There was no ability for plants to acclimate to the extremely high temperatures that we had. And then the level or the degree of temperatures that we achieved. And so depending on where you were at in the region, we reached temperatures in the mid to upper 90s. In some cases, it went above those numbers into the 100s. And then we also had the fruit itself. So even if the air temperature might have been 95 that fruit was at much higher temperatures. Um, We had readings of 108, 110 degrees Fahrenheit. And so at that point, you start to get UV damage and heat damage to the tissues, uh, both the fruit and then also the leaf tissues. So with the fruit, it's the, the level of the intensity of the heat and the UV that will cause what we see the scalding um, because at those temperatures, there's cellular damage that results outside of those temperature optimum that those cells are adapted to function. And then what also happens with heat is that the stomata, which are on the underside of leaves and are involved in cooling the plants, transpiration, 
uh, high temperatures, those start to close as an effort to conserve water. So the plant is conserving water, but what that means that from the plant's perspective, it's also lost its ability to naturally cool itself. So that increases the leaf temperatures and that can lead to foliar damage on the plants as well. Well, and I felt like I saw a lot of that when I was up there not shortly after all this took place. But, you know, I know we talked a little bit about the Aurora and the Calypso varieties in terms of those that sustained damage or, or maybe more damage because of the variety type that it was. But is there generally anything, you know, outside of variety selections that could make blueberries more resilient in conditions like this in the future? What would growers be thinking about needing to consider Obviously, Calypso and Aurora are very popular varieties in the Pacific Northwest. So what can be done? Certainly. Well, there's a team of researchers in the region that are trying to think ahead and how to answer this question. One would be looking at genotypes and advancing selections that would have some tolerance to this heat. Um, and so that's something that breeders within the region, I know Dr. Claire Luby at USDA in Corvallis, Oregon, has been looking at. I'm not sure if Michael Dossett or Dr. Dossett in British Columbia is also has attention to that, but that heat did impose a stress. And so among their selections are able to see what is more tolerant, what isn't. And that could be something that they could utilize in their breeding programs for heat tolerance. There's also horticultural ways that we can deal with heat. And Dr. David Bryla at Oregon State University has led research on that, specifically looking at evaporative cooling systems. I think a big question for our industry, given this is unprecedented, is you know, whether or not if this is worth the infrastructure development expenses, or if it's a direction we want our breeders to be pursuing, because if it's a one-off event and we don't expect to see this again, then it might not be a very good use of both our research and breeding resources, as well as growers' resources to develop that infrastructure. Well, therein lies the multi-million dollar question. I think, you know, has there been conversations in those same discussions about the expectation that this heat is, you know, climate change related, going to continue? I'm sure that's got to be all part of these discussions on how that plays into, you know, the future whether it's breeding or it's the systems we're talking about being deployed, you know, what is the consensus? How are you taking into account those larger questions? I guess I could jump in there. So I, I guess it's really an economic question because whether extreme weather events are by their natures, they're, they're unpredictable. And so if we get multiple years in a row where growers are having this sort of damage from a heat dome, then the calculus becomes, okay, well, I'm losing money. Now I need to spend money in order to save that lost crop. So putting in a micro sprinkler system is quite expensive, but if you're losing a substantial portion of your crop in every year or every other year or every third year, then maybe it makes sense to do so. So I think the grower community is, is going to be looking at this much more closely in the years to come to say, okay, do I need to start investing in something that's going to give me long-term stability, long-term insurance against these sorts of events. Wow. Okay. Lisa, your thoughts? Yeah, I think there's a range of responses I've, I've heard from both the grower, researcher, and extension community. Um, a lot of it is with the word climate change in the back of our mind, is this a product of climate change? Is it not? And then just to what Eric was saying, is this going to be 
something we need to invest in. And I think that's something that time is going to tell as we see, are these just events that are infrequently going to be occurring maybe once in our lifetime, or if this is a more consistent pattern. And if it's a more consistent pattern, then then a lot of us will be looking towards making those infrastructural as well as um, investments in some of the plant and breeding sciences that would help with the resiliency of our industry. We're going to take a quick break here for our Blueberry Boost. We'll be right back to this conversation in a moment. But for now, here is USHBC NABC Vice President of Engagement and Education, Amanda Griffin. Thanks, Casey. This week's Blueberry Boost will be centered around an update on the Blueberry Industry Leadership Program. The program's fellows kicked off their journey last week in Seattle, starting with a day of leadership coaching from Sway Leadership. The class spent the next day at the Cullinex Innovation Center interacting with their team and exploring the product development process and how value-added blueberry ingredients are used across the industry. Later in the week, the fellows dove into food service and learned about the endless possibilities for blueberries. USHBC's food service agency, Sterling Rice Group, led this session, which illuminated not only how the industry drives volume through food service, but also reviewed key findings from the Blueberry Patron Study and the Blueberry Volumetric Study. Continuing the theme of illuminating the possibilities, the class heard from Microsoft FarmBeats about their tech innovations that will help the ag industry become more efficient, build sustainable operations, and drive growth. The class was enthused about the future potential of data, robotics, and cloud computing. To cap off the trip, the class spent time with Bryant Christie to discuss international trade and how new country markets are explored and opened for USA blueberries. The fellows also spent time with the USHBC team and leadership throughout the week, hearing about their visions for the future of the blueberry industry. The group also had time to get to know each other and form the initial bonds that will drive team development throughout the year and beyond. What a week it was. Now, if you are just tuning in and are unfamiliar with this program, the inaugural Blueberry Industry Leadership Program launched in March 2021 and is designed to elevate up-and-coming leaders in the blueberry industry by providing in-depth training, industry education, in connection to other ag leaders for passionate blueberry professionals across the supply chain. The application period for the second class of fellows will open in spring 2023. This has been your weekly Blueberry Boost. Now, Casey, back to you. Well, you know, for those who are listening and maybe have been being impacted by this, you know, and, and may or may not have seen your white paper, which we will certainly keep in the show notes, you know, for people to reference and, and be able to review on their own. But but what other resources have you seen, you know, come available for growers who have been either impacted by heat or floods? So um, information resources, a lot of that has been, you know, the regional response that, that Eric and myself have helped led with other researchers in terms of just trying to put information out there to help growers make these challenging and complex decisions or crop consultants that review it. Within our region, there's the Whatcom Emergency Management Organization because the flooding particularly struck that county. And then we also have State Emergency Operations Center through our Department of Agriculture and then the USDA Farm Service Agency. So those those are other resources that growers can turn to for their operations if they've sustained severe damage. 
Yeah, and up here in Canada, we uh, during the flooding event, there there's a range of different governmental programs that were in place and rolled out in response to this. So both our provincial and federal governments have programs called agri-insurance and agri-stability and agri-recovery. And various components of those programs were made available to growers in the months following the flooding event. The other thing that, that we noticed here is, is a real community coming together type approach. So I, I actually live right on the edge of the Sumas Flats. Um, my farm is here about 800 meters away from the edge of the floodwaters when they got their highest. And even today, we're here on, on June 8th, just down the road from me is a, is a little place that's been set up that's a food hub for people that have been displaced by the floods or have their, their houses totally gutted right now and are being renovated. People can still just go down the road and, and get food from people in the community that have banded together to supply them with what they need. So I, there's a couple of things there. There's the government programs, but then there's also the, the coming together of the community to support people that have been severely impacted. Wow. Well, it certainly was devastating. I, I, under the pandemic conditions, wasn't able to cross over to the Canada side when I was at the Sumas Flats looking at what had taken place there. But from what you're describing and what I saw on the U.S. side, incredible damage. Just, you know, houses, neighborhoods that experience that massive amount of water going through there. So, you know, kind of fast forwarding to this new season we're in that's following both the heat and the flood, but in particular with the heat. So, you know, I'm standing in the field there uh, up in Northwest Washington, looking at the damage, talking to growers, talking to extension service folks, and they're describing what looks to be like a multi-year impact of the heat. So yes, there was going to be damage because this just happened and you can expect that, but there was a lot of conversations going on about what they should expect next year and growers specifically walking through and pointing out what would look like a multi-year impact of, of the heat dome. So we're here now. We're going to start to see if that's true. But do you have any sense based on where we're at at this point of the season on if it is better than we expected, it's as we expected? And how would you answer that question? Because there's so many people who are impacted so differently based on where they were located. Certainly. Well, I'd first kind of say it's, it's hard for us to come up with expectations. And that's where we stood. I'd say as we moved into to July after the heat dome, what made it even more challenging is that the areas most hard hit by that heat dome were also the areas that got significantly flooded. And so now we have these layered effects that are really hard to separate out in some cases. Some cases, the damage is really clear. This was heat, this is flooding, and we manage accordingly. But now, you know, where I'm sitting at and some of the questions I'm dealing with with regards to crop growth for this coming season, we're also trying to separate out effects of an unusually cool, wet spring as well. And so it's it's hard to say exactly what our expectations are and what we plan to see other than, you know, certain fields are, are going to be fine. They're going to pull through. Certain genotypes are going to perform well, we hope. As we kind of started this conversation, it's, it's too early for us to, you know, really say because we just are wrapping up our bloom. But there's, and there's certain fields that, you know, we're extremely hit by, by the heat and drought. And we are expecting these multi-year effects as either the plants recover or the grower is replacing and renovating the fields. Yeah. 
Well, again, I appreciate both of you, you know, jumping on uh, this podcast and kind of giving us a bit of the backstory of what both of you experienced in the flood and the heat situation in the Pacific Northwest. You know, I think before we wrap things up, you know, anything, Lisa, from your perspective that you want to make sure people understand about the experience that you went through or what they may be looking at on the go forward that you'd want to share before we let you go? It's been an unusual past 12 months. I mean, it started with, I guess, with the heat dome. It started since June. So, you know, a lot of us here in the Pacific Northwest, Oregon, Washington, British Columbia, we're working together. We're trying to come up with our best um, recommendations. So reach out to us um, if there's questions within your area and let us know what those concerns are. And, you know, we're, we're motivated to try to help the growers and help the industry. Excellent. Well, and you, Eric, any last thoughts before we let you go on walkaways for the industry? Sure. You know, I think we still have a lot of questions that are unanswered. We've done our best to take care of plantings that have been severely impacted by flooding, whether that's just repairing and replacing soil that's been eroded and replacing sawdust, or if it means hard pruning, or if it means renovation pruning, or if it means replanting. There's been a lot of work that's been done by growers to try and recover. But for plantings that have not been removed and been replaced, we've got a few questions that are outstanding that I think everybody wants to know the answers to, and that'd be, how long is it going to take for root systems to recover? How long is it going to take for a renovated field to return to full productivity? And probably the most important question is, will fields return to their former level of productivity? Because we may be able to get the shoot system to reestablish, but maybe roots are damaged to the point where that field will never be the way that it was before. So a lot of questions that need to be answered in the next three to five years. And as we go forward from here, you know, from kind of a communication standpoint, is, is there a plan in place? Is there a, a source? I mean, we certainly are happy to continue to provide any information that, you know, continues to come from the experience that this has been. But is there a consolidation, a place where we can send people for more information about things that they want to learn on either the heat or the flood? There's not a not a consolidated source that I'm aware of, but you know our region we do have the Northwest Small Fruit Update, and so that's been one vehicle where a lot of us in the industry, growers, researchers, crop consultants, try to put information, whether it's published or anecdotal observations, and then you know some of the information produced in the region we also try to put it on websites, so like the flooding document that went on Oregon State websites as well as the Washington State Small Fruit Horticulture website. Yeah, and just to add to that, up in Canada here, the, the BC Blueberry Council has a mailing list of, of growers and they've been very proactive in sharing information on resources for growers and giving them all the all the information that that is available in a timely manner. And I would just encourage growers if they're listening to remain engaged not just with the researchers in the field or extension specialists, but with, with the commissions, articulate their questions, their needs, because that's how they can be channeled up and how we can try to answer those questions. I think for a long time, we're going to be saying, I don't know the whole story yet, um, but we really need engagement and participation for us to work together on this. Well, I appreciate this engagement. I appreciate you both giving of your time and, and certainly the time you've spent on helping us understand the circumstances that this industry went through. Blueberries, obviously, in particular, I know you're working on, uh, you know, the berry patch generally, but 
thank you on behalf of the industry, your work over the course of the summer and of course those floods later in the winter to help us understand you know, the future and this business that we're in and the impact that these kinds of weather events have uh, when they take place. So thanks so much for listening. We'll be back next week with more innovation, collaboration, family, and hard work right here on the Business of Blueberries.